Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and a very warm welcome to you. Great to be with you this afternoon. It is Wednesday afternoon. It's here in the High Felt. It's nice and warm uh, today, still in summer mode. And uh, great to spend some time thinking about the things we could be thinking about, we should be thinking about, chatting about things that perhaps we thought we knew but didn't really, or perhaps to shed some new light on um, some stuff that uh, we continually hear and maybe aren't quite sure and maybe sometimes are just (laughs) a little afraid to ask. So it's called Judaism 101.9, and um, I'm your host for the next 45 minutes or so. We'll be talking things to do with Judaism 101.9. Last week we kicked off this um, sort of series, let's call it, of programs where we were speaking about explaining what the Shas is. Remember, we spoke about the fact that many people were talking about the Sium Hashas, and uh, did you ever pause to think about what does that mean? What is the Shas? What is the Talmud? What is the Mishnah? What is the Gemara? When people keep on saying it says in the Gemara, what are they talking about? And we hopefully managed to shed some light on all of that last week, explaining those terms, those ideas, and those ideals. And I thought that today we would continue by speaking about something else that is often quoted, often spoken about, and perhaps you haven't been in a position to ask or you've been too afraid to ask because everybody thinks that you know or everybody thinks that you should know. And today's uh, subject will be talking about what is the Midrash? What is the Midrash? Or what is Midrash per se? Now, the word Midrash comes from the word, or the root of the word, is the word Darash, Dalad, Resh, Shin. The word Darash really means to inquire, to expound, to uh, magnify, and to amplify. And in fact, if we think about it, that is what the word Midrash really means, which gives us a nice springboard into discussing actually what Midrash is and then perhaps to go on to say what the Midrash is and is there a difference. Well, let's begin by saying that on a Friday night or on a Shabbat or whenever it is, you've often heard a similar word where you've talked about possibly in your shul, in your community, the rabbi's drosha. Well, that used to be known as a sermon. Perhaps the word sermon is a little bit too anglicized and a little bit old-fashioned, and people like to talk about the drosha, or the rabbis giving, as some people shorten it, possibly incorrectly. They call it the drosh. It is meant to be the drosha. But, of course, the word drosha is too long for people to say, so they say drosh. But the idea of drosha is really a concept of what midrash really is all about, because what does the rabbi do on a Friday night, on a Shabbat, when he gets up to speak, aside from putting you to sleep or perhaps (coughs) waking you up to the extent that you're really angry at what he said, usually the idea of a drosha, drush, the action that he is doing, is to expound upon a point, to take a verse perhaps 
in the uh, Chumash, in the Parsha of the Week, to take something perhaps in Jewish law or Jewish life and to expound upon it, to amplify it, to magnify it, to bring different analogies to it, to give it a story um, that may be added to it and make it into something whereby not only will you remember the original verse, but you will unpack it on many different levels and you'll be able to hopefully understand it a lot better, whether it is a facet of your Judaism, whether it is something about general Jewish behavior, whether it's something about the politics of the day, whether it's something about Israel. No matter what it is, there's the idea of drush, of drosha, of midrash, which actually is very, very important to understand or to un- the understanding of Jewish thinking, of Jewish law, Jewish philosophy, and the way we go about our understanding of our beautiful, huge, large, amplified Torah in every way and in every level. We're in the month of Shvat, and in this month of Shvat, the uh, one of the most important dates, of course, is a date that everybody knows coming up in a... Uh, couple of weeks' time called Tu Bishvat or Chamisha Bishvat, which, all, which has a lot to do with trees. So perhaps it's appropriate in this month to tell you that there is something very important that um, plays out about Midrash when we think about trees because um, the great sages of yesteryear told us that there are various levels or various different Settings, let's call them in a spiritual sense or in an interpretative sense, with which we can unpack all things in the Torah, all things in Judaism. And they put it into a tree analogy where they called it pardes. Pardes meaning an orchard. Now you and I know that an orchard is a place where there are a number of trees and hopefully there's a lot of fruit and uh, there's a lot that we can gain from going into that orchard and benefiting from it. But we do understand that the orchard is made up of trees which have roots and they have trunks and they have branches and they have leaves and they have fruit that they bear and so on. There are a lot of different facets to it and there's a lot of different facets to how we understand those trees and how they grow and how they're analogous to life and to the human condition. And uh, then some, there is so much to be spoken about when it comes to trees. How much more so when we're thinking about an orchard where it's not just one tree or a, a couple of trees, but where it's a whole orchard of trees, this whole array of different trees bearing different fruits, perhaps in this magnificent orchard. And the Hebrew word for an orchard is a pardes, pardes. Traveling to Israel, you must have seen that name often. There are many places in Israel that are called Pardes this or Pardes that. A Pardes meaning an orchard. It is made up of four letters. A Pei, a Resh, a Dalet, and a Samach. Pardes. And we're told, and we think about, the idea of interpreting or unpacking Torah, elucidating, illuminating Torah. There are actually four different levels that can be employed in the unpacking of the Torah. One is called Pshat. Pshat, with the P, the pay of that word Pardes. Pshat. Pshat means the simplest level. Simple interpretation. While you might argue that it's not always that simple, but the plain down-to-earth interpretation. This is what it says, that is what happened, and that is what I've got to do. Pshat. The second level is Remez. Remez meaning... 
a hint. It alludes to something. It's something a little bit more. There is a hint to something else. That's called remes. The third one is what we're going to focus on today is drush. The word drush from the word midrash, darash, means drush, to expound upon it, to amplify it, to magnify it, to illuminate it, to make it um, played out in all its senses and in all its places and ways. And the fourth one, the samach, stands for sod, the mystical, hidden, the secrets that are behind it all. While we may have an image that is clear as an image in Torah, we're not quite sure or we don't necessarily see at first glance the sod, the hidden message behind us, behind it, how it is reflected in our souls and what does it actually mean to us spiritually. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We've been talking about the Midrash or Midrash per se. So the first thing to understand, as we explained last time, or just before the break rather, is the idea that Midrash is a way, a mode actually, of unpacking and interpreting. It is the drush. It is the magnification. We've got to remember that everything in Torah is written in very, very cryptic words. Torah chooses to be cryptic. It is not um, spelled out. It is not um, flowery. It doesn't add details. And there are many, many things, as we spoke about last week, that uh, were given in one word or sometimes in a couple of lines to really capture or to really speak about huge mitzvot, things that have to be done on a regular basis. If we think about something, for instance, like the law of tefillin, it is mentioned in two lines. You say them every day, hopefully in the Shema, where we talk about binding them as a sign upon your hand and frontlets between your eyes. Now, from that statement, it is impossible for anybody to really know what that's all about. We need the oral Torah, the Talmud. We need all the explanations that were given to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, about exactly where the tefillin have to be uh, worn, how they have to be strapped on, uh, what they have to contain, what they should be made of, what their color should be, what they should look like. All of those things are contained in the Torah. And then there are certain details that it seems that are missing. What happened? How did Moshe Rabbeinu actually speak to God, so to speak, on this occasion, what did he do? How did he get out of the Almighty exactly what the oral tradition, the oral Torah was all about? So there would then be something called Midrash. There would be an interpretation where people of uh, great stature, great rabbis were sitting and looking at these occasions and they put into words exactly what happened, what they knew intuitively or by divine providence or by divine inspiration, they knew exactly what had happened there, but they spelled it out. And when they spelled it out, that way is called Midrash. They spelled out exactly what happened. They elucidated, they illuminated, they filled in the gaps, and they made the whole story kind of come to life. Where in the Torah, in the Bible, in the biblical text itself, it is written very cryptically, the Midrash fills in all of those gaps. 
The concept of Midrash, therefore, is a way of actual learning, a way of understanding, a way of interpretation. It was employed by several, many, many different people over many, many different times and generations. And um, all of their combined work, which we'll talk about in a moment, became known as the Midrash. So let's get back to this concept of um, Midrash per se, of the idea of Drush, the idea of Drosha, the idea of illumination, and why it is so para- of such paramount importance in Torah, because literally without it, there is a vast, vast amount of Torah that we could never really understand. There is so much that needs to be extrapolated from the tiny little dot that might appear in the form of a word or in the form of a of a sentence in the Torah. But actually that is something um, like the atom um, within a scientific kind of a framework that is so small and yet so huge and so powerful and can be used in so many different fashions and so many different ways of extrapolation, of taking it from there and really understanding so much more about that particular story or that particular law or that particular teaching and bringing it to us in ways, means and in realms that um, we would otherwise certainly not know and in ways, means and realms that we otherwise would never have even dreamed of as being applicable or being possible or being linked to that particular succinct simple little idea and thought or law that is conveyed within the Torah itself. So the way of learning it is called Midrash. The broader concept of the Midrash is something else that we need to explore. And here the Midrash is really divided into two different broad categories. There is what is known as Midrash Halacha, Midrash Halacha, and here we have the Midrash or Midrashic interpretation being used to bring out practical things that we ourselves need to know how to do and how to follow and what we are supposed to do from that particular law. So it's not always that clear when you take a look at the simple, succinct, cryptic message that's given by the Torah. The Midrash comes along sometimes to teach us Modes of behavior, modes of law, things of practical application that we need to do in order to fulfill the um, the cryptic message that was given within the Torah. We call that Midrash Halacha. Midrash Halacha or Midrash, let's call it legalese, legal Midrash. There's then the bigger kind of realm, which is kind of more commonly known and thought about, and that is called Midrash Agada. Now, the word Agada, in a couple of months' time, you're going to come across the word Hagada. Yes, it does come from the same form, the same root um, as a Hebrew word, Hagada, Agada. It is the stories, the storyline, the illumination, the uh, beautifying. It is kind of when you have something really simple and you... Take it into the realms of um, a graphical 
um, a kind of a uh, an elucidation of exactly what is written there in a very very simple fashion. You make it, you magnify it, you make it into something that is a beautiful and glorious story. That's known as midrash agada. Now the midrash agada is taken from so many different um, sources that is quite unbelievable. It is so hard, uh, so large, and so huge, so vast that it is um, almost impossible in the realms of this little explanation to really uh, to to touch on um, even even just a few of them. But um, the concept of the midrash is a loosely used term that refers to anything, perhaps, that would come from any one of these authors over many, many years, any one of these volumes of text that were written down over many, many years. The Midrash is not just a book that you can pick up off the shelf. And perhaps it's been made a little bit uh, more understood in one way, but less understood in the other, by people publishing works such as a popular um, um, proponent of the Midrash is a set of volumes called The Midrash Says, for instance. The Midrash Says is by no means anyway meant to be exhaustive of everything that's in the Midrash. But what they have done there is they have taken and kind of um, simplified into five volumes, a volume each that um, will contain some of the things that the Midrash does say or the various Midrashim and the various writers do say about a certain um, a part of Torah, a certain story, a certain law, a certain idea and a certain ideal that are conveyed within the Torah that is then quantified there. So while on the one hand, which I guess is something that any book or any work on Torah does, while it will um, simplify and it will put into a single storyline or volume or on a few pages something very uh, deep and profound and uh, perhaps um, magnifying it and making it much simpler for people to read and understand, on the other hand, it kind of underestimates or undervalues the huge, vast tracts of uh, of midrash that are out there that are that that that, that were known over uh, periods of time, <coughs> and that form this body, this vast, vast body of um, of work that is known as the midrash. Now, this is commonly known, as we said, as the midrash agada. The midrash agada actually was mainly compiled and is mainly referred to the compilations that were done from about the years 200 to 1000 of the common era. So in other words, it is post-temple times, in times where our rabbis were worried that um, uh, oral tradition, like we spoke about when we spoke about the Talmud per se, was not going to be recorded, it was not going to be passed down, was not going to be uh, given over from one person to the next as it was originally intended because we were exiled. And they sat and they wrote and they put down their recollections and things that they had learned and so on. There were many, many of these midrashim that were well known beforehand, but they put them into certain works. And these were great, great sages who were writing these things down 
and putting them into classical works. And there are so many. The lists are unbelievable. If you take a look at what is actually Midrashic, um, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different um, uh, tracts and different um, works that were done. I mean, just to name a few, if we just to run through, there was known as the um, Aleph Beit of Rabbi Akiva was a book of Midrash. There is the Mechilta, which is known as Midrash. There is the Seder Olam Rabbah, the Sifra on the book of Vayikra on Leviticus. There's the Sifri on um, Numbers and Deuteronomy. There is Sifrei Zuta, which is known as the small um, Sifri. There's the Midrash Kohelet. There's the Midrash Esther. There's the Psikta. There's the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. There's the Tanchuma. There's the Midrash Shmuel. There's the Midrash Tehillim on the book of Psalms. There's the Midrash Mishle. There's the Yalkut, Yalkut Shimoni. There's the Midrash Agadol. There's the Tanad Yahu. There's the Midrash Tadshe. And then we come to something that has actually become sort of synonymous with the Midrash. And perhaps it's to this that most people really refer when they talk about the Midrash says, or it says in the Midrash, which was known as something called the Midrash Rabbah. Now, the Midrash Rabbah, <clears throat> was studied by um, the great commentators, and they actually put out a collection of ten midrashim on different books of the Torah, um, particularly on the Chumash, on the five books of Moses. And this then became known as the Midrash Rabbah. And it's probably to this that we really most often refer when we think about midrash. But we've got to know, that Midrash is quoted just about everywhere, not only in your rabbi's droshes, in his drush, in his Midrash that he will give you on a Friday night or a Shabbat or whenever he gives his drosha, but more particularly by people <coughs> of the likes and the caliber of the greatest Torah commentator of them all, perhaps Rashi, who continually quotes from the Midrash in order to illuminate, in order to... Get a point across, while Rashi makes it very, very clear that he is writing for a Ben Chamesh Lamikra. He is really writing in the simplest form in order to fill in and uh, sort of iron out the bumps that you might confront along the way in trying to unpack a story, in trying to unpack a law, in trying to interpret a passage in Torah. Rashi fills in those gaps. He very often employs different Midrashim taken from various sources of the Midrash in order to illuminate, in order to give us a much better picture. And in that, perhaps he is telling us that you cannot really understand the simplest of things in Torah without having the Midrash to back you up. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. One of the phenomena of the Midrash is that we find that it is not contained and it is not um, confined to actually speaking about things that are absolute um, Torah laws and it is not contained and it's not confined to speaking about things that are really only within this world. For instance, uh, the Midrash often delves into things of philosophy. 
it has a fair amount of mysticism within it as well. It talks about angels. It talks about um, paradise. It talks about heaven. It talks about hell. It talks about Mashiach. It talks about the Satan. It talks about feasts. It talks about festivals. It talks about parables. It talks about le- legends. There is so much that is contained within the Midrash that um, is allegory, that is metaphor, that is um, utilizing all the facets of literature and all the facets of thinking to come together into this magnificent, huge, as I said, over uh, overarching and overreaching um, a kind of body of work that we always or often just refer to as being the Midrash, that it is really a combination, a compilation, and an extension of everything that we have within the Torah and everything that uh, came, let's say, thereafter in having been written down thereafter, but that we understand um, to be part and parcel of the Torah that God gave us at Mount Sinai. And this element of Midrash is absolutely essential. It is really kind of the glue that really holds it all together and without which (coughs) we would have a very sterile, a very stale, um, let's say, and a very um, cold and very um, non-explicit kind of a a, a Torah uh, were it not for the Midrash. Let's uh, just give you a sort of an example, perhaps, about how the Midrash fills in certain gaps. Um, we all know, I guess, the um, story of the creation of the world, for instance. When the world was created, we talk about the six days of creation. And then it says that um, on the sixth day, God saw all that he had made, and he found that it was very good. Now, we've got to remember that God had created man. He had created uh, possibly and probably the potential for the greatest, greatest achievements that man could ever achieve. But within man, he had also created the possibility of some really, really, they would call them today dodgy dealings, um, really, really bad stuff that man could get up to and that man could do. So how does it say there that um, it was evening and it was morning on the sixth day and everything that was made was very good? Now, the Midrash brings in the name of Rabbi Nachman, in the name of Rabbi Shmuel, who said, when it says, behold, it was very good, refers to the good desire. And behold, it was very good, also refers to the bad desire, to the evil desire, to the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov. This is... What the Midrash says, can then the evil desire be very good? That would be extraordinary. It would be unbelievable to think about the evil desire being very good. But without the evil evil desire, the Midrash adds, no man would build a house. Nobody would take a wife. Nobody would have children. And so King Solomon said, again, I considered all labor and all excelling in work that it is a man's rivalry with his neighbor. This is actually how the Midrash unpacks a statement like, it was very good, 
when it was talking about man. We've got to remember that what God created, even the negative things uh, within man, have a purpose. They're there to teach us something. And without them, certain great and wondrous things wouldn't have happened in God's wonderful world. The Midrash sheds light upon it. It gives us an illumination. It tells us actually what is going on in the simplest of words that we otherwise would take for granted. Back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Next time you hear the word Midrash, hopefully you'll be able to explain or understand that um, Midrash is a way of unpacking something. It is a way of learning in Torah, the way of Midrash. It is a way of illuminating, extrapolating, expanding what has actually been said there before. But in addition to that, and more importantly, there is this vast, vast body of different works that are all loosely known as the Midrash. I would recommend that you try and study some Midrash if you can. It really, really opens up huge, huge channels of uh, Torah study that you never dreamed about, that you never realized were possible. Some of the things that you read in the Midrash sound Outlandish at first when we start putting them together and we start unpacking them and formatting them into a format whereby it um, uh, it paints the picture that the Torah is trying to convey to us. We suddenly realize the different levels because that is really what it is all about. Torah is given on so many different levels. There is the simple, there is the slightly deeper, there is the really deep, and then there is... The so deep that you can hardly grasp it, but one needs all of these channels and one needs all of these um, elucidations, illuminations to come together to give us what we know as and what we study as Torah. It is essential. It is huge. It's vast. It's magnificent. You'll enjoy it. It's got so much value and so many teachings and so many nuances within the Midrash. Um, try and get hold of some good Midrashic books. Try and get hold of some good Midrash on the Torah. It will change the way you think about and you see stories in Torah. It will add to them. It will make them magnificent. And you will certainly be enriched by everything that you learn and you read in the Midrash. I look forward to being back with you again, same time, same place, next week um, at uh, on, on High FM, Judaism 101.9 and uh, wish you a great rest of the week a great Shabbat up ahead and see you soon, take care